Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, Super Bowl? Are we still dealing with a Super Bowl hangover? Are we feeling better by 3 o'clock on Monday afternoon of the day that everybody should have off? Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling great. I actually had a meeting pretty early this morning, so I had to kind of, you know, uh, halftime, you know, just start hanging out, preparing for the future. I, I said, you know, I, I felt like 182, and they said, I guess this is growing up because I'm sitting there going, okay, what are the best Super Bowls of my life? And I'm just having a great, wholesome time with my boys. You know, I got to watch the Sponge cast on Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. That was super fun. People ask me all the time, Will, why do you have multiple TVs? Well, I have to watch all these SEC games or I choose to, right? But they don't factor in the Sponge cast. And I think that's really what the X factor is. Shout out friend of the program, Noah Eagle on the call for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Noah Eagles rising star voice of the big 10 football uh, very, very soon here on NBC. Uh, yeah. The, the game itself was, I shouldn't say the game. The second half was what I hoped it would be, which was great. Mm-hmm. And overtime and, and all that stuff. If you don't have a dog in the fight, I think that's kind of the ideal scenario. Now that's outside of vets because vets, you do have a dog in the fight, but entertaining from at least the halftime performance on like even usher was really good i would have liked a little bit more alicia keys than what we got but you know that's neither here nor there right um it was it was good overall like i I, i've really really enjoyed it just Mahomes being so inevitable and all that like you know when i really knew it was over when i really knew because you know we we made our picks the other day and and you might have thought a certain way like during the game but when I realized that this game was going to come down to Pat Mahomes or Steve Wilkes, I thought, give me Mahomes, please. Yep, that's that's a good callback. And we were talking about that the other day with Steve Wilkes and how just bad that Mizzou defense was under him and how Blake Baker was seen as a savior when he turned that defense around because of how horrible it was. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's classic Kyle Shanahan you know I think the defense held up fine but it was just like nine decisions that he may have made one right that they had this game they went from being totally in control of the game and that's what was so great about this you know it was not some all-time generational performance by Pat Mahomes it was the fact that he had to battle and come back and they had to you know the second overtime Super Bowl in history um first one Shanahan also lost in a very yeah. moment near and dear to my heart. So that that's the thing is that, you know, I, I think that it was great television after watching so much slop for the last two years in terms of the regular season and even some playoff games where it's like, who is playing quarterback today? We ended up with the most entertaining four teams, I think, and then the most entertaining two teams. And we ended up with one of the most entertaining Super Bowls I've seen in a while. So it's pretty cool. Well, can I confess something? Hmm. This is trust tree, right? We're, we're, we're in a, a place where we can – freely express things that happen to us that might be a little bit embarrassing, but you know what? I'm, I'm comfortable enough with my football acumen to admit this on public airwaves. I was kind of trying to figure it out on the fly with the overtime rules. I was, mm-hmm. Hey, so were the Niners. So that doesn't, <laughs> you know, you have a brotherhood with you there. <laughs> yes. I was not playing in the biggest game of my life, but at, my own home watching this and I'm trying to figure out like, Oh yeah, I get, I get it. It's a new game that starts and they, you know, they're trying to do the matching thing. Each team will possess the ball both times. But when they kept saying over and over again, like it's a new game, I'm thinking to myself, did I miss something where it's the, the score when the clock hits zero on the overtime period. And so the entire time I'm looking, I'm trying not to focus on the clock because they keep telling me that it doesn't matter. And that both teams will have a chance to possess the ball. But at the same time, it's like, Hey, if the chiefs, 
score a touchdown here, it's over. I, I was like, I was just a little bit lost in moments that I'm usually not while watching a football game. And I did not feel totally confident in myself in myself to mansplain what was going on to Lauren. It's to me, it's obvious. It's that college football figured out over time perfectly, but the NFL will not admit that college got it perfect. And hmm. so they have to just keep making up new stupid overtimes that are all going to be worse than the college one. Just because we've had so many games in with like a star quarterback not having a chance to get the ball in overtime and it's happened to Breeze. And so point being, like, that's the worst way to do it. So they tried to like you know, finagle this new rule in there where it's like, well, you both kind of get the ball to your points. Like, does the clock matter? Does the clock? It's just a, a stupid rule. They didn't just pick up the college one and be like, hey, you know, <laughs> no harm, no foul on that. At least we didn't have Mahomes not getting the football because the Niners kicked a field goal at, yep. in overtime. So I guess that is that is the win. But you're exactly right. College overtime rules, at least the ones that don't you know, get weird after the second overtime are still the best, in my opinion. Um, excellent show on the way today. We have Barrett Slee coming up in a bit. We dig into the wild move by Chip Kelly to leave his head coaching position at UCLA to take the OC job with Ohio State. Talk a little bit about Bill O'Brien, the opportunity that opened up for Chip Kelly to be able to go to Ohio State. Barrett has kind of an AM 180, not quite a 180, but close to a 180 on the Aggies. And then talk about some of the the future, the future of this this current coaching cycle and a few other things with him. And then we've got Jersey contest and lad of the week. But first the big news over the weekend that wasn't Chip Kelly, that wasn't the Super Bowl, was that Ryan Grubb is actually not moving at all. He is staying in Seattle. <laughs> Crazy concept. He is not going to become the offensive coordinator for Kalen DeBoer's first staff at Alabama. That came out late Friday night that Ryan Grubb has made the executive decision. Moving sucks. I am not going to do that. I will be the Seahawks offensive coordinator. Um, can't fault a guy who doesn't want to move. Um, we've all been there. He mm -hmm. will also be joined apparently by Scott Huff, who coached that Joe Moore award-winning offensive line at Washington, who was set to join DeBoer and Grubb at Bama. But he is also reportedly going to the Seahawks, which is definitely significant. But weird that it came out. When it did, the timing three days after the signing day thing, where if you saw the photo from the next round where Ryan Grubb is saying, I'm the next offensive coordinator at Alabama. Uh, nope. And then the caption's like, he's not going anywhere, haters. Well, yeah. there he goes. Yeah, the, the comments revisiting some of those, I definitely did. After we, we, we saw the news late on Friday night, you, you revisit it. It does feel, and I referenced this the other day, it feels a little bit like Ben in Parks and Rec with the accounting firm. It's the mm -hmm. same thing. It just felt like Bama had finally locked down Ryan Grubb after I thought he was going to go there last year and what would have been Saban's final season, but they couldn't get him then. They thought they had him this time, and apparently that they couldn't. Um, the third time, though, with Ben in the accounting firm in Parks and Rec, he at least gave them Cones of Dunshire, which is, I think, mm -hmm. the nerdiest thing that I've ever said on this show. Um, and they got to have fun with that. The accounting firm did. I don't think Ryan Grubb gave Bama a cones of Dunshire. I don't think so. Yes. Maybe. And again, you know, it just feels like no matter how much we legislate stuff, right? I mean, Grubb announces this decision like 11 minutes before the transfer portal window closes after signing day. So the players that thought he was going to stay kind of got trapped there the same way they would have before the portal. So it's all that maybe that's what he left behind was some players that thought they were going to play for him. Maybe, yeah. When you see that report from the Seattle Times that this came out the second week of February so that Bama could 
perhaps avoid this during the 30 day window, wherein players on the roster can transfer without penalty. Uh, you see some of that and you're like, well, that's, that's fishy. That's kind of messed up that they would do that. And I realize that there's still a spring window. I also realize that Bama very much got screwed by the 30 day window existing. And the fact that everybody could just go into Bama and just pick, uh, pick out these players because tampering is investigated, all that stuff. So there's a feeling like, Oh, Hey, this is gamesmanship. And this is just kind of the other side of it. I think there's more of a problem with the window itself, right? If the window is 10 days, we're not talking about this. It's not really a thing. But instead, we're now left asking questions about the Bama offense that had Ryan Grubb, but never really quite had him. I think for starters, it's a huge loss. I think you can still call it a loss because it was the expectation that he was going to be Alabama's offensive coordinator. I think it's just significant that he won't be there. Perhaps that's the better way to phrase it. Washington, as we know, 107th in scoring offense before Grubb and DeBoer arrived. They were 7th in 2022. They were 13th in 2023. When they got to Fresno State, they took over the number 125 scoring offense in college football. They improved it by 10 points per game in year one, and then another seven in year two. Those guys are good at what they do. They elevate mm -hmm. the places that they go. They are not Brian Harson 2.0. I don't know how many times I have to say this. I do not think that is what they are. Of the tens, go ahead. You're, you're, I, you have a take about Harson, and there's a certain name that you might have – called Kalen DeBoer that I don't know. Do we want to bring Do we want to make it public or can people just go on no, Twitter? No, listen, I don't think either of those guys, the OC or the offensive line coach or Brian Harson, but I will say this and you'll probably get around to it later. You know, I actually don't think losing Grove is that big of a miss just because, you know, when you've seen him by himself, he hasn't been as impactful as when he's with DeBoer. That offensive line coach is huge. Huff. And we talked about that at the time. That was the, the coaching hire that I liked the most that was made by Alabama, was going from the worst offensive line that we've seen at Alabama, or one of them, one of the worst in Power Five. Let's not be, you know, let's let's be fair here yep. and say, okay, well, if you look at the Washington team that won the Joe Moore Award, you know, and we could debate were they number one, were they number two? Who cares? You know, they're one or two, right? So, point being, you know, that was a position group that I thought was going to get turned around immediately by a very talented guy in Scott Huff, and I, I do think that's worth saying that he's probably the biggest loss i'll still say that grub is, is is bigger just because the ability to call plays and do so at a high level in college yeah. football is still of great value but but i agree they're, they're both very significant and we know that with with grub and DeBoer, they they've had this this partnership this relationship that dates back 17 years of the 10 seasons that they have been coaching at FBS schools in the playoff era. They have been together for nine of those seasons. The lone mm -hmm. season that they weren't together was 2019 at Indiana. And we know that Grubb stayed at Fresno State instead of falling DeBoer to Indiana. DeBoer at Indiana takes over the number 88 offense in the country. And then, boom, he steps in, elevates it by five and a half points per game. Did that with total autonomy on that side of the ball with a defensive-minded head coach in Tom Allen. Indiana won eight games in 2019. Should have won nine. They blew that bowl game against Tennessee. Tennessee fans, don't get mad at me for saying that. You know it's 100% true. Indiana blew that game. Tennessee deserved to win. But Indiana very much blew that game in typical Indiana fashion. That's the way that it works. It was still Indiana's first eight-win season in 26 years. I think everybody remembers 2020 more so when we talk about when Tom Allen was actually good. Nobody actually talks about that on that's listening to this show. But if you're going to talk about the glory years for Indiana, it is years and not just a year because they were good in 2019. Will, before that, before that 2019 season, 
Do you know how many times Indiana won eight games in program history? Just take a guess. Oh, man. See, that's a double-edged sword because there were fewer games back in the day. In the history, I'm sure they have like a 100-something year history. Oh, man. I'm going to say like four or five. It's not a bad guess. It's seven. That's okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a few years in the Western Conference, how Indiana was Western at one point. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, yeah I guess if like Princeton's East, then you could be West if you're in Indiana. That's fine. People forget Indiana didn't join the Big Ten until I think the early 1950s. So mm. some some murkiness there with with the schedule. Didn't quite dig into the strength of opponent, strength of record metrics for the the early 20th century. But you know you can kind of you know add that up in your own mind. I, that year, IU in 2019 averaged 31.8 points per game. Did it matter that Michael Penix? Went down with one of his many season-ending injuries. That actually wasn't a knee. That was like a collarbone deal that he went out with. And Peyton Ramsey came in and ran the offense, which ended up with an even 36 pass attempts per game to 36 rush attempts per game. Peyton Ramsey, Michael Penix Jr., very, very different players. Very different players. When DeBoer didn't have grub, he did not collapse. He adjusted. Do mm -hmm. I assume that means that he will be perfectly fine without him? No. But if you're under the impression that DeBoer's entire standing as a college coach is just because of Grubb and his presence, I'd argue that's probably a bit shallow, probably not looking at the entire picture of who he is as a head coach. Here's and like another, I said, the opposite could be more true. That's the thing is that maybe DeBoer elevated Grubb. You know, we, we still yeah. don't exactly know about that. I do think of the, of the two, DeBoer is definitely the better coach. Yeah, they have said many times, like, I am great in part because I have this other person with me. Mm -hmm. and sometimes, yeah, that it's okay to be willing to admit that, not which one is, it's, you know, the chicken or the egg type deal. Yeah. And we always want to give one person more credit than the other. And sometimes you just realize this just works with them together. Mm -hmm. Here's another reality, though. At some point, at some point, Kalen DeBoer was likely going to have to replace Ryan Grubb at Alabama and figure things out. That's That was inevitable. Mm -hmm. If he did his job well, or if he didn't do his job well, this wasn't probably going to be some Kirby Smart situation where he was a coordinator for eight years. And yeah. remember, even Kirby eventually left. You know, like That was best case scenario, and he eventually left to obviously do his own thing. And Maybe. to your point, you know, if you're getting NFL OC job offers, which he obviously was because he took it, right? What what does it really make any difference to say, I'm going to move my whole family to Tuscaloosa. I'm going to get kids out of school. I don't know what his life situation is, but moving sucks, as we've talked about. So it's like it probably would have been for a year or two because if the NFL is already knocking on your door and the Seahawks are just a perfect fit, right? So that's probably why he went a little bit earlier than he would have. If, that, if Pete Carroll was still there, if he had a staff in place, maybe he waits that extra year to get a better, more perfect job. But you're like, yo, I don't really got to sell my house. This is already in Seattle. I'm good to go. Like, I already have the job offer that I want. So there's no reason for me to keep trying to get it. And to your point, potentially mess up the bag. And I think, too, if you're hoping that a guy is going to stay in that role as a coordinator for a long time and you're saying, well, what about like a Brent Venables? Brent Venables at Clemson, yes, best case scenario, also eventually left Dabo Sweeney. And now we're talking about Dabo Sweeney adjusting without Brent Venables and what are their defenses look like year over year and how much are they developing there? Like, it's just, it's inevitable. I mean, Saban did this so many times and we talked about it a million times over of this coordinator hire and that coordinator hire. Like it never just gets to be, well, oh, you're just going to have this, this person 
at your side for the duration of your time at a job. It just does not work like that. And maybe loyalty to DeBoer would have kept him in Tuscaloosa like a year or two after there were more fish starting to bite. Maybe that could have happened and that could have benefited DeBoer. That, that's possible. But you could also end up like Matt Campbell. Everybody watch you one season, the next season is like, hmm. <laughs> Great point. <laughs> Left on red, yeah. That's something we might have to dig into with our time capsule episode is is the things that were being said about Matt Campbell and these up and coming coaches, how quickly that can change and how fleeting that can be when you're in a position like that where you're not at your destination job. I, I don't care what Ryan Grubb says, even if he had gotten in front of those people at the signing day event and said, this is where I want to be for the rest of my life to be calling plays as an offense coordinator at Alabama. I don't believe that's the case. That's just never the goal. And even if you are better at that, it doesn't mean that that's where you want your career to just stop. So it, it's interesting. It's really interesting because I think Grubb has shown plenty of loyalty to DeBoer and vice versa. If you go back and look at this relationship over the years, despite the fact that it played out this way at Alabama, there's a great story in The Athletic about their relationship. And it ran in December right before the playoff semifinal game where DeBoer called up Grubb in the summer of 2007 and offered him the job of, get ready for this, offensive line coach. Also, in addition to offensive line coach for 2700 bucks for five months, oh, uh, we need you to be the assistant strength and conditioning coach and the equipment manager. That was Ryan Grubb's entry, his first full-time job into college football. And he took that, at that time, because in that point of his life, obviously you have a coach on the other end who's coming off of an NAIA national championship. Mm-hmm. DeBoer would eventually go on to win two more. That's not a big part of the resume. It's just the part of the story. But at the time, Ryan, Ryan Grubb is 31 years old, and he's living in his sister's laundry room in Sioux City, Iowa, which is not to be confused with Sioux Falls, South Dakota. At the time, Ryan Grubb is an early 30-something, like uh, in between where you and I currently are right Mm -hmm. now in terms of age. And his full-time job was pouring concrete. He had finished up being an assistant at South Dakota State. He did that Mm -hmm. while pursuing a two-year master's degree. So Grubb at age 31 is just trying to become a full-time head coach. And who's the one who calls him to give him that first opportunity? It's Kalen DeBoer, and the rest is sort of history. Those guys are close they got better together. So that, that, that was at that was at Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That was like at his first stop at Sioux Falls. The, yes, the 2007. And he was living in Sioux City, Iowa, which is confusing. Right. right. Yeah. That, very, very confusing. The that echoes the point I made initially. We talked about this. This dude has seven jobs. He's a very talented gentleman. We know that from now. But he had seven jobs at that school. <laughs> yeah. Had a, had a bunch of different jobs, man. If you're I, – I, I look – I try and put myself in, in that spot and how badly do you want to get into an industry? And sometimes yeah. I think back to the days of when I was applying for jobs, when I was living at home post-college and I had six months where I was trying to figure out where is my first full-time job going to be in this industry? And I tell people all the time, I applied for 60 jobs, 60 jobs over the course of that six month stretch. And I got two job offers. The first was very early in the process. It was in Yuma, Arizona. It's about 10 miles away from Mexico. It's not a bike ride away. It's very far away. And the other was being able to work in a newspaper in central Nebraska. And so you think about all the different things that you would be willing to do during that stretch. And when I guess you're living in your sister's laundry room in the middle of Iowa, 
pouring concrete, which look, I'm sure he made a decent living pouring concrete full time. I'm sure he Mm -hmm. did. But realizing I will do anything, anything. And this guy gives you that opportunity. You're always going to want to do right by him. And maybe that origin story does have something to do with why they were able to get to this place and why it has felt like those two have been so synonymous and so closely linked to one another. But now, obviously, it will be different. It will be very, very different. I don't judge year one coaches. We don't do that. I try not to. I, can't, I don't want to speak just totally on, on your behalf. No, that's a, that's a little pact that we made when everybody was freaking out about the first couple of years. It's like, let's just give them one and a half, probably. <laughs> you can't tell by that second half year mark. Yeah, exactly. The, the 22 cycle was mm-hmm. what made me kind of develop that stance when you had all these big time programs that were making new hires and it's USC, it's LSU, it's Notre Dame, it's Miami. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, man, just try and tap the brakes, just mm-hmm. tap the brakes a little bit on some of these things. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and do that as much as possible with DeBoer, as difficult as that is with his one of one situation. But I do think about him trying to establish that offensive identity as he tries to show that his offense can work in the sec. And that's a big selling point with recruiting, with fan support, with NIL support, all of those different things with Grubb and Milrow, you would have had one of the best offensive minds in the sport with the guy who finished higher in the Heisman Trophy voting than any returning player in college football. And now you don't have that. Now you don't. As it's as I said, when, when Grubb appeared to be on board for this job, that still would have been a, probably a pretty significant adjustment from what they ran at Washington because we know that Milrow and Penix are wildly different quarterbacks who see the game in a much different way, and the personnel did not lend itself to run the exact offense that we saw at Washington the last couple of years. That's not my way of saying it absolutely would have worked no matter what. There just could have been some growing pains. And in reality, there could still be some growing pains with a new play caller that isn't Ryan Grubb. I suppose that's a good thing that even without Grubb, I know that Milrose play caller, whoever that ends up being, will not be Bill O'Brien or someone saying that I think you would be better off not playing quarterback. So that's yep. a win. That's yep. that's a win uh, long term. Bama and Ohio State both kind of dodged a bullet. Not Bill O'Brien as the OC is a strategy that Bama fans can get 100% approval rating. No doubt about it whatsoever. I'm so furious we don't get to see him at Ohio State. That is the one human who I think could have really turned that thing into an issue. And I'm so sad because it would have been funny. I should have looked at national championship odds before and after the Bill O'Brien-Chip Kelly swap happened. And what mm-hmm. exactly that looked like. I don't suppose that it changed drastically, but... Am I ranking Ohio State a little bit higher knowing that Chip Kelly's running that offense instead of Bill O'Brien? Probably. Yeah, probably. Can't really and there's a good point in there, too, which is that, you know, Ohio State had already gone through two offensive coordinators by the time this happened. You know, Chip Kelly is not answering the phone because he is moving to uh, Columbus, right? So that makes their current situation in Alabama interesting. That's why I say it's, it's sometimes good to have an offensive-minded uh, head coach like DeBoer because it's like, you know, if you had – Coach O out there, you know, you would not know what to do right now. You'd end up with some bum who had total autonomy. Whereas now it's like, yeah, if you look at when you start to look internally, that's when your head coach is kind of the guy who's it's kind of like Saban calling the defense last year. They talked like Lane Kiffin said that. It's like the defense can only get but so bad under Nick Saban before he just starts doing something. That's the opposite of the advantage of DeBoer, which is like if you lose Ryan Grubb, you can kind of just figure it out for a year until you can really hire someone if you want to. So what does DeBoer do? That's that's the question that we need to ask, right? It's as you, as you mentioned, like this is a situation in which you feel fortunate that you have an offensive-minded head coach. Do you pivot? 
and say, all right, I'm going to promote Nick Sheridan to that role or, and, and do kind of like a co-op thing where it's internal. And again, mm-hmm. like I'm not really focused so much on who gets the title of offensive coordinator. Like I, I think that's a little bit overrated. I, I care about who's calling plays. That's, that's right. the thing that, that we're talking about today. How, what, what your actual, what your actual title is, is different than what your responsibilities are at, at so many of these places. So that's the question. Are you going to keep this internal? And do you have somebody on that staff already like, like Sheridan that you can just promote and say, okay, you're going to run my offense or is DeBoer going to do what some have suggested, which is call his own place. You know how I feel about that. Not great. I, I, I don't like it. I don't like it. I, I much prefer the hypo Kiffin CEO approach than the, I've got to do it all approach. Mm-hmm. And now more than ever, I would so much rather do that. And I hope that he delegates. I hope that he delegates those responsibilities to Sheridan or it's an outside hire or somebody like that. If, if there is a Kirby Moore situation, God, what if Mizzou got both of its coordinators poached from teams in the SEC and you lose Blake Baker and you lose Kirby Moore? I, again, I don't think that'll happen. It doesn't look like it's trending in that direction. But again, this is, I guess, all on the table. And let's all remember this too. If we don't treat Saban and Kirby as primary play callers, if we assume that those two coaches were not the primary play callers for their respective teams, no coach in the playoff era has juggled primary play calling duties and won a national championship. Think about that. The last mm-hmm. one to do it, ironically enough, is Jimbo. 2013. <laughs> Offensive genius. No wonder he's like, hey, I got this. He was running out. that play called Jameis Winston throw the ball very far. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But but it is something that, that needs to be kind of kept in mind with this because I think we've seen that when DeBoer can run a program and he has someone that he trusts calling plays, like Ryan Grubb, obviously, he he has been the best version of himself. In that athletic story, Grubb had this quote about DeBoer's role in Washington's offense and why he still feels like he has control. And it's not something where it's an offensive-minded head coach that's micromanaging all the time. Grubb said, quote, overseeing a top five program is a mother load. He's got a lot more to worry about than red zone offenses. Yeah, (laughs) Grubb is right. (laughs) It is a mother load. It, It absolutely is. It is also a mother load to take over a program that has had offenses that scored at least 32 points per game in each of the last 15 seasons. That, wow. There is a high offensive standard. Yeah, think about how many different offensive coordinators have been rolling into Tuscaloosa and have done that and have kept yeah. that up dating back to 2009. That's when that streak began for Alabama, which coincidentally is when they started winning national championships. Alabama doesn't do mediocre offense anymore, okay? At their worst, they're like 25th, 30th. They're still what you would call one of the better offenses in the sport. Okay, not maybe one of the best offenses every single year, but one of the better offenses. Yes, the good news, the good news. And and this is what I just feel like has been the the saving grace of this entire deal of, of having kind of an awkward exit with someone that looked like he was going to be the top assistant on that staff. I can't imagine DeBoer was totally caught off guard by this. I don't think he was. And Greg Byrne told the Tuscaloosa News that they knew this would be possible. There was always a plan in place if that did happen. I do believe that to a certain extent. I don't think that was the expectation. I don't think that that was, oh, 
they brought him on board and then they just hoped that he would do a bunch of recruiting for him. They always knew that he was gone. I don't think that's the case either. And I, right. but it also didn't happen, you know, at midnight that one night. That's the other thing. And like, I imagine this dynamic in a way similar to like my buddy John, who you've seen me work with. I worked with John at this point for 12 years and there's only been one little period where me and John didn't work together. And guess what? Guess what I did? Brought him as a freelancer because that's the dynamic that we have. We work so well together. And if this was me and John, I would kind of know how he felt pretty early. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's my thing is like, hey, like if if you have that type of relationship, you call your boy up and you're like, hey, man, like what's the deal? They're not going to lie to you because they have that much respect. So, yeah, that was kind of what I started alluding to is that it was much closer to he knew from the beginning than he knew 11 minutes for the transfer portal closed. Yeah, but even if even if you knew that there was a possibility that this was what Ryan Grubb wanted and he had mm. NFL aspirations – I would still take that chance. I would yeah, still take yeah, that chance. Yeah, for sure. Even if it meant I've got some egg on my face, I've got to make a new hire, I've got to pivot, I would still take that chance because what if he doesn't get that job? What if he mm-hmm. has this interview with the Seahawks that doesn't go particularly well? And then you're like, hey, we, we have this guy who is still on our staff, and I, I don't care if NFL teams are to come after him. That's a sign that he's doing something right. So that, that could have been on the table as well, even though everybody, of course, wants to connect the dots and assume that this was this conspiracy theory of they knew that this was going to happen and they just wanted to be able to get players on board. It's like, it doesn't have to be like that, but you know, ideally Alabama didn't want this exact situation. I, well, I that's think, such a good point too, because you know, you can kind of see that play it out where you go, Hey man, how'd the interview go? Oh dude, they loved me like straight up. Like, I feel like I really represented myself. Well, I feel like they love the concepts I presented. I feel like they complimented my fit. Oh dude, I'm feeling so good about it. Versus yeah, man. Like we've all had interviews like that. We're like, yeah, man, this, this isn't going to be for me, dog. Like I bet he knew that much is all I'm saying. Exactly what you just said. You know, we did a figuring out on that a little bit ago about mm-hmm. uh, that dynamic of telling your superior, telling your boss that you're leaving for another job. And yep. I've always I've always been fascinated by the, the examples that have come up um, with Saban and going into Saban's office and telling him that you're, you're leaving for another job. And I'll Anytime we have a Saban disciple on the show, I feel like that's a question that I ask because, mm-hmm. you know, there's the Dan Enos example, which is just what not to do in yeah. that case and just be like, oh, I'm heading out. I'd like to avoid this conversation. Um, and then there are others that that have obviously had to look that, you know, that guy in the eye and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to, to somewhere else. And it depends on what exactly that is. If it's, well, if it's Saban, probably like the top of his head. <laughs> look, man. It's hard. Like even even when I left my boss in Central Nebraska, mm-hmm. nicest one of the nicest people that I've I had the pleasure of working with. It was still one of those conversations where I was like, "Do I tell him that I'm looking? Do, do I tell him yeah. that I've had an interview with this place or that place?" And and those guys are tight to where I'd like to think that they had an open line of communication. But you know, reality is is that if you're in a job that is not considered a destination job, which a coordinator job is not, even in a place like Alabama, there's, there should always be that assumption that's just sitting right there. So I can't imagine that DeBoer like only took this job under the impression that Ryan Grubb would be his offensive coordinator. I can't imagine that they had the conversation beforehand of, Hey, if I do this, will you come with me? And then that's why he left Washington. I don't think it played out like that. If I had to guess you can do that at Eastern Michigan or Fresno state or even a four-win Washington squad, which is what they were in 2021 before those two guys came on board. But you're not letting Ryan Grubb's decision sway you from leaving for Alabama. You're, you're just not. Mm-hmm. Grubb could have said in that moment, 
you know what? No, now is the time to fly on my own. I'm going to pursue something else because we talk about that window and how important that is. If DeBoer wasn't going to be able to succeed without Ryan Grubb, he never would have succeeded anyways. He never would have been able to last long at Alabama. So you're going to have to do this at some point. It's just happening earlier than you would have liked and maybe earlier than you would have expected. But it's significant. It's significant that he won't get any of Ryan Grubb as his OC unless he's one and done with the Seahawks. And then he comes back to the college game. Maybe don't rule that out. The college to NFL, NFL, the college pipeline, whatever you want to call it. It's more fluid than ever. Thanks in large part to something that you've talked about a lot on the show, that how synonymous all right, synonymous is the wrong word, but um, what's what's the right way to phrase this? How closely aligned their offensive schemes have become college yep. and the NFL. Yep. Um, and that that ubiquitous. is ubiquitous. There's a U- dollar word for you. Ubiquitous. There we go. That's exactly the word I was looking for. Not really, but I do like that word better than any that I was trying to come up with. Ubiquitous. Some are saying that Joe Moorhead being rumored rumored for NFL jobs as the master of the RPO Mm -hmm. because of his ubiquitous offensive scheme that it makes a whole lot of sense. Some are saying that people are saying Bruce Feldman never heard of him. All right. Mm -hmm. Just throwing that out there. So yeah, just keep, keep in mind that if this is an outside hire, you're coming in to run DeBoer's offense. And maybe that's a little bit tricky as well. Like we talked about how much with Bama's OC, it was like, you're going to run the offense that Lane Kiffin implemented at the start of the playoff era. And you can put your tweaks on it. But this is this is the type of offense that we got to run. You're not bringing the triple option to Tuscaloosa and doing anything like that. So full autonomy, eh, debatable. Um, but yeah, it is an interesting development and one that could impact the national championship next year. Yes, yeah, I mean, 100. percent And you know, far be it from me, an LSU fan, to be like, "Oh, dual OCs don't work." You know what I'm saying? I mean, I think, in fact, this is probably the second year in a row that Alabama has kind of copied LSU's playbook and said, "Okay, we go go Reese first, then we go co OCs." I see your game. I appreciate it. But the co OCs, but does that does that matter though? Because co play callers like 2019 right. LSU is different, very different. People do co OCs all the time. Yes, yeah. Malzahn did co OCs basically his entire time at Auburn. Co OCs. <laughs> Only you would know OC at Auburn. He did. You do what Gus Malzahn says at Auburn. <laughs> right. You're like, oh, hey, you get to have this title, and maybe I'm going to take play calling duties from you. Maybe I'm not, and maybe I'm just going to blame you or whatever. But like to me, I, I don't really care as much yeah. about, about that. I care more about who's actually up there dialing up looks and how that breakdown shakes out. Yes, and I think it all comes down to perception slash recruiting, right? Exactly to your point, which is that DeBoer, you know, we talked about that's maybe not a strong suit. So him being a play caller on top of what he's got to do, you know, if Kirby Smart is sitting here going, I'm going to bring in three defensive binds to be in this room and just be cooking stuff up all the time where I could just, I could make a little adjustment if I need to, but really I'm I'm in the... I'm on the sideline call recruits. That's my main job. I'm the CEO. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that's part of it. That yeah, I do think it would be even more specifically than you know a Jumbo or a Billy Napier in a a misstep for DeBoer because it's a new uh, even style of recruiting. It's a new batch of coaches. It's a new part of the country. So I I definitely think that yeah, elevating some guys and saying. Okay, you know, this is going to go on your resume, to your point, your co-OC. What does that really mean? Who's to say? If I'm DeBoer, I'm going to give you a glowing review if you were to move on from the spot regardless, you know what I'm saying? So I, I do think that it's about next season. It's about let's evaluate you guys. Let's put you in a little boot camp, let you know what I like to do in my offense, and you guys take it from there and run. And then that way, 
you know, another part of that's the media scrutiny. I mean, every single one of these coaches we've talked about, even, you know, Lane Kiffin at times, it's been like a uh, high pool, same deal when the offense kind of sputters. It's like, well, this is your offense. DeBoer needs to stay as far away from that as possible. He does not need to be answering questions about the specific minutia of his offense and taking the blame for that side of the ball. I would get as far away from that as I could if I was him, just because it's a waste of time. If you're a head coach, it really isn't worth your time to sit there and go through, well, here's why I called this play on this down. Here's why I saw this and this look and this coverage. It's not your job anymore. Like, go get someone else to – not necessarily to be a fall guy, but if they can't answer the question, they don't deserve the job. You know what I'm saying? So get put that part of your team and and say, let's give you guys some on uh what's they say? What do they say? Corporate some on uh on field trading or on career trading where you're like you're stepping up into a new role. It's like okay, so if you guys if this works, you know you can stay here and you could have this on your resume and you work for Kalen DeBoer and I'm a winner and it's all good. If you don't stay here, well. What were we supposed to do? Ryan Grubb left us at 11 minutes till the portal closed. We didn't want to go out, hire some outside guy. So now he has time to evaluate for a full year. And it speaks exactly to your point of this is why we don't evaluate first-year head coaches. Because this offense, if it's dog water this year, that doesn't mean anything to me. Because that means to me that the board's not meddling in it. Because if this offense is top 10 in the country and the recruiting class is 100, I'm going to sit there looking at the board like, this ain't going to work very long, brother. You better get somebody in this door. I, I don't want the back and forth. I don't want yep. the best back and forth. If, if I'm DeBoer, I'm I'm trying to figure this out now. And even some mm-hmm. of the stuff with Ryan Day going back and forth now, you're like, man, you, you got to figure this out. You got to figure out what you want the future to be, where your your needs need to be met in, in terms of elevating your program. Where do you feel like you're coming up short? What do you feel like you need to do better? And what can you do better if you delegate this to someone else? With DeBoer, it's like, yeah, I think he could run a really good offense. I don't really, I don't really doubt that. But what happens if he has some of those issues that we talk about with Billy Napier, where all of a sudden you're like, man, God, it, it doesn't look like this team is is prepared to play. They're having mm-hmm. this issue on special teams. Oh man, the recruiting is really falling off. They're not really doing this the way that they should. Oh, their fourth down calls are just horrible when they're going for it, when they're not going for it. These are all things that as a head coach in today's era of college football. You need to be prioritizing. You've got to be evaluating talent in the transfer portal and doing that and signing off on that. What does that part look like? It is just such a different ball game. And so, yes, you can give me examples where it's worked. Okay. Like I, I, I'm fully aware that there are examples where it has worked. I think for the most part in the direction that the sport is heading, we will look up three, four years from now and the amount of head coaches at big time programs who are calling their own plays will be so minimal. It really will be like there, there is just so many other things to, to have to worry about. So I'm not going to look at that mm-hmm. as like, Oh, he doesn't really believe in himself. Some might try and spin it that way or something like that. To me, as you said, it would be a great sign if you're willing to actually look at it from a 360 view and say, this is what I feel like it, I need to be able to maximize my abilities and what I personally do best. But yeah, look, this is part of the job. Mm-hmm. This is all about the decisions that are made after you are hired. That was going to determine Kalen DeBoer's longevity at Alabama. Just dealing with a little bit more adversity early on than some would have expected. Yeah, and I'll say, you know, these are two ideas, you know, that go the same direction, which is okay. Old boy at Boston College says, oh, this isn't about the kids anymore. It's about the NIL. I'm leaving. I'm going to go, you know, work for the Packers. Oh, they they offered me three shares. How could I turn that down? <laughs> <laughs> like, look, ownership? You're not going to be ownership in touch with me. Anyway, so 
point being, okay, then same deal. Chip Kelly, boom, stepped down to go be, of course, Chip Kelly steps down, you know what I'm saying? Because, oh, it's about NIL. It's not about the kids. It's not about the kids. Well, the more comes out on the other side says, actually, I have time for the NIL, for the special teams, for the, for the recruits, and for the, you know, it's like, Hold on. Everybody else is saying they don't even have time to coach and be head coaches to just be head coaches. So I hate to say it like this, but I think DeVore is smarter than that. Like, I think he's going to realize those new challenges in the new area of college football and say, people are leaving the sport because it's not about coaching anymore. I can't afford to really be a position coach and also handle the stuff that's scaring people away. Do you think that when Jeff Halfley gives his, gets his three shares of the Packers, they present him with three separate certificates and he gets to have all of them framed? and put them in a different room in his house and show that he has this amount of shares with the Packers. I, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's part of the gig. I, I haven't gotten to that level of coaching. Who am I to sit here and, and judge that? There's it's probably like that certificate they gave Drew Brees when they broke the completions record. They just handed him a PDF at the midfield. Those are the shares right there. Don't get it twisted. I love a good certificate. Degrees are just glorified certificates. If we're being hundred percent honest, we hang them up. We take pride in them. Um, yeah, I'll just never forget my, my, my Packer fan friends who look, they're, they're great people. Absolutely love them. We've gone on vacation with them. They're, they are awesome. And mm -hmm. I, I love so many things about them, but being like, man, so, so that's, that's what we're taking our pride in. All right. That's, mm -hmm. that's fine. I'm very biased. I'm very biased. I'll just continue to be a hater. Jeff, Jeff Halfley's now got three more shares than I do. It is what it is. It is what it is. All right. Anything else on this before we kick it to Barrett? Yeah, no, I, I, this is just the most fascinating. Like, that's the thing is that, you know, I texted you early and I was like, this is the most interesting thing that's ever happened in college football since we've been covering it. You talk about expansion, you talk about this stuff, but this really is just a reset of this Alabama job and the power, because they had all the power. All right, you want me to say they had it for 20 years. It was like the king is just ruling with an iron fist and empires would rise and fall and rise and fall and say would still be sitting there. Now it's like, well, who's the new king? You know, that's the thing. That's when revolutions tend to happen is when you get a new king in there. You see that in the British situation right now where Queen Elizabeth was super, you know, uh, maybe not popular, but at least well-regarded, right? And now, you know, you have a new king. How does that work? So I think that's the deal is that this is this destination job in college football for sure. I mean, that's there's no question there. So every little bit is going to be scrutinized. And if you're a Bama fan, that's a good thing. You know, with Saban, it was, well, Saban can handle it. With DeBoer, it's how will DeBoer handle it? And that makes for just a better conversation, you know? Better conversation. Bama was going to be too dominant if Ryan Grubb had come on board, and now everybody else is – no, okay. Okay, please don't take that seriously. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take it to Barrett. We discussed Chip Kelly, the A&M 180, not quite a 180, close to a 180, predicting longevity of this current coaching cycle and a bunch of other stuff. So here's Barrett. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Barrett Salee. Barrett, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Your rooting interest in the Super Bowl is just rooting against Kyle Shanahan? Pretty much. I mean, he's the reason the Falcons lost to uh, the Patriots. Uh, we still hold grudges. I, I Look, the dude lost the playbook before the Super Bowl, and then he decided to throw passes when literally all the Falcons needed to do was uh, kneel down. So, uh, yeah, I, er, I, I really want him to feel pain constantly and after the overtime loss i i hope he feels it i look for for your sake and for the sake of all falcons fans listening to this i kind of hope that he just continues to blow double digit leads it'd be and awesome. it makes yeah like if, if he does that it makes 20 to 3 just easier to stomach because it's like ah it's just it's just a shanahan thing which look it's, it's clearly looking like it's it's shaping up to be that way for sure 
Uh, let's talk Chip Kelly here. It's it's wild to think about an active Power Five coach willingly leaving for a coordinator job in his conference. But if you dig into the situation, there there wasn't really alignment with the AD. Chip doesn't like recruiting to begin with. I don't think he liked it as a lame duck coach and with the, the new NIL world that we live in. It, it probably would have just been brutal all around for this year. Why do you think the timing unfolded the way it did with Ohio State when he reportedly also had interest in becoming the Iowa OC, which is just a crazy, <laughs> crazy thing to even say out loud? That would be, have been awesome. Not going to lie. That would have been wild to see how Chip Kelly and Kirk Ferentz, uh, how that relationship uh, would go. But, you know, I think it's interesting to me because Chip Kelly's interest really started to, like, become reality when the NFL season ended, right? Or when teams started, you know, bowing out of the playoffs or whatever. And so I think it became obvious, hey, Chip Kelly's looking to go somewhere else, most likely the NFL, and he didn't get those jobs. So stepping down to become the Ohio State uh, offensive coordinator is a slap in the face to UCLA. Obviously, the relationships had soured. But, I mean, this is a guy who doesn't like recruiting, obviously, but he's still going to have to do it at Ohio State. And... Yeah, you're not dealing with all the administrative stuff that a head coach is, and and I get that, and that's got to be annoying. I, I can't even imagine living that life, but you're going to still have to do a lot of that. You're still not going to just be able to coach ball like Chip Kelly wants to do, and you're going to have to still answer the questions that higher-profile players are going to ask about NIL and about things like that. So. It's odd to me. It's a slap in the face. And obviously the timing is mostly due to Bill O'Brien leaving. And so for that, you know, Ohio State fans, just that news in and of itself is good because I don't know what Bill O'Brien would have done at Ohio State, but it would not have been successful. And now you get Chip Kelly calling plays. So Ohio State fans have to be thrilled. But for Chip Kelly to slap in the face to UCLA, there's no doubt about it. And I, I think it is certainly a reflection on the new era, but I don't necessarily think Chip Kelly is – um, going to get to uh, avoid some of those things that frustrated him at Ohio, and now that he's at Ohio State, is it a good fit? That's that's what I've, I'm I'm kind of wondering about because you know you could do this all over college football and kind of match up different different offensive minds with that program and say, oh, if only they had this offensive mind, they'd really you know take that next step. And, and look, I think Ryan Day deserves a lot of credit for being willing to to have an ego like Chip Kelly. That's going to be on your staff, which is not something that a lot of coaches would sign up for. No. But I, I kind of wonder, is this going to be a fit? Is this going to really take that offense to the next level? Because I, I think Ryan Day is a better play caller than the average Ohio State fan probably gives him credit for. But to see this now in this role, it's just a fascinating move that we're going to scrutinize because we just have to. And that's what Ohio State has set themselves up for. Yeah, it's, it's going to be wild. And I think part of it, too, is that Will Howard was there and Chip Kelly had nothing to do with that. You know, and so they bring in Will Howard from Kansas State. He wasn't going to start at Kansas State. I think he's incredibly overrated. So what is Chip going to do? If if he picks Will doesn't pick Will Howard to run the offense, what's Ryan Day's reaction going to be? Because that's the guy that Ryan Day picked out. So, you know, I think there's already some situations that I think can transpire that would test those personalities. And I I think Chip will be fine with the weapons that he when you have Trayvon Henderson and Quinshawn Judkins, it's gonna be really hard to screw that up. And I think there's the one thing we know about Chip Kelly is it actually is a run-based offense now. And it has been a UCLA and really was at Oregon 
when you know he was sort of installing that um, that new age spread that has been picked up and copied all around all around the sport. So to me, it's it's more about who he picks at quarterback because Will Howard can't win you a national championship. Julian saying Aaron Nolan might be able to, Devin Brown might be able to, but that decision I think will test that relationship and I think let everybody know like, hey, is this going to be harmonious or is this going to be Jimbo and Petrino? Is this going to be, you know, less in Matt Canada? Because it could go in that direction. You're really not high on Will Howard at all. He's not. <laughs> I, I, He's I mean, not. So what, what's what, how did Kansas State have a top 10 offense last year? Is that just all Colin Klein? Does that lead to yes. more of a belief in him? Okay, so then that means that you're doing a 180 on AM. And you're a believer in AM <laughs> now that they don't have Jimbo Fisher. You, you, is, is that, is that a fair thing to say? Like it were, cause when we talked last year before the season, you took a lot of heat, that, that clip that, that made the, the rounds, of course, when you're like, well, are we really doing this again with AM? I was right. Just saying you, you did end up being right. The offense was better, but you were right about Jimbo as a whole. So where are you at right now with the Aggies? Is it safe to say you've done a full 180? A full 180? No. <laughs> Am I like at 110, 120? Maybe. Okay. Because like addition by subtraction, right? Jimbo's not there. That's phenomenal for news for Aggie fans. Uh, the new, the offense will be fine, right? It, it will be fine. I'm more concerned about the, the structure of the program, right? How does the, the game management of, of Mike Elko impact the decisions of the entire offensive staff. You know, I, they're not going to win the national championship. They might be an eight win team with the new look offense. And honestly, if you're an AM fan right now, eight wins, the, the full Jimbo Fisher might be all right in the new era because you don't have those expectations, right? It's not like it was before when you expect to go to the playoff with Jimbo. Eight or nine wins should be fine this season. Not moving forward. Now moving forward is different, but I think from from an offensive perspective, yeah, they're going to be much more creative, and creativity leads to being competitive uh, against much bigger teams, much better teams. And you know, the the, the schedule is the schedule. I get it, but uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a higher on A and M long term, but this year the Jimbo Fisher special is should be tolerable. And honestly, I would view that as progress because you're not taking a step back with a coach who's only had two seasons of, of of head coaching experience. With Jimbo, with Chip Kelly, Jonathan Smith, those were the last three hanging on in terms of power five coaches from that post-2017 cycle who were still at their same jobs. Now all of those coaches are gone. It's <laughs> a wild thing to think about with how splashy that cycle felt and to think that we have already moved on to this this different era for a lot of teams where look, there were coaches in good standing. Jonathan Smith obviously was, but they have moved on to, to other jobs. So let's look to six years from now. I'm going to put you on the spot. Tell me if these five coaches from, and I'll go one by one, if these coaches will still be at their job six years from now. So that's the start of the next decade, 2030 right. that we're talking about. So let's start with Jeff Levy. Yes or no. He will Ooh. still be at Mississippi state in 2030. No, no, I don't. I think that is going, look, I, Mississippi State fans are going to have to be patient, kind of like Texas A&M fans. They're going to have to be a little patient with the guy. Uh, Mississippi State fans aren't necessarily patient when things get to year two or year three. So, uh, no, I don't think he will be. Sharon Moore, Michigan. 
Yes, I would say that he picks things up right where he left off. As long as they don't expect national championships every year, or even, you know, if, if he misses the college football playoff every once in a while, fine. As long as they don't expect that, then yeah, he'll be there. Jed Fish at Washington. Oh, man. Ugh, I hate saying yes for this, um, but I might say yeah. I mean, new look Big Ten. Yeah, he's there in 2030. But that might be like the, that might be the ceiling. I mean, that's, that's really hard. I'd say 5149. Yeah, he's still there. Barrett, I think this is the longest he was at a job in the last like 17 years or something like that. Yeah. He was at Arizona for three at years. At some point, you got to settle down though, right? I, I would think moving sucks. He, mo- he does. likes moving. It he's, does. He's a sicko. Yeah. I, I really hope he hires movers. This is like total sidebar. Don't ever do it yourself. Don't, it's awful. No. After your what's the what's the final age that you should move yourself? 24, 25? I would say it's more on status, right? If mm-hmm. you if you're married, that's like the the make or break point. If you have kids, movers, 100%. But if you're married, it kind of depends on where you are, townhouse, real house, renting, owning, things like that. You could even there's like college movers and stuff. Like you could get two kids for for a couple of hours. That's yes. that's going to be worth a couple hundred bucks, absolutely. Yes, for sure. Kalen DeBoer, Alabama. No, I don't think he'll be there. I I think that for him to be there, he would have to win multiple national championships early in his career, and I I just don't think he can do that. Even if he wins one, getting to what would be a year seven, that's what we're talking about. You're getting to year seven if you're still at the same job in 2030. uh, One's not enough. Even (sighs) if they make the playoff every year, one's not enough because think about this. If he only has one, but he makes the playoff every single season, but consistently consistency lo- consist- consistently loses in the playoff, that's not going to go over well. Sure. Bill O'Brien, Boston College. <sighs> what are the? I mean, Boston College's expectations are low. Uh, Bill O'Brien will not be there because if he succeeds, he'll get another NFL job, and if he fails, six years seems like. Too much to tolerate at Boston College. It does. It really does. Okay, bonus one then. Mike Elko at AM. Mmm, damn it. Connor, you're killing me. Um, <laughs> Mike Elko will still be the coach at Texas A&M in 2030. It will be dependent on... Okay, if Texas A&M makes the playoff once in those six years, Mike Elko will still be at Texas A&M. Now, if it's only once and they've been good but not great and lose to Texas consistently, that might be the end. But if they make the playoff once, that'll help. Okay. I think that I, I think you gave a very fair bar for, for these new hires because everybody assumes that they're going to be there for that the entirety of, of a contract, and the numbers are kind of showing us like one, maybe two of those guys will still be at the Let me ask you this. This is something that I thought about when I was doing the show, uh, I guess it was Friday. Does Kalen DeBoer have NFL aspirations? Because if, if, he, if he wins a national championship at Alabama over the next four years and makes the playoff twice, let's just say, and he gets a call from, I don't whoever, the Chargers, not the Chargers because Harbaugh's there, um, the Rams, or because or, we've heard McVay, you know, yeah. you know, th- that McVay might want to just retire, which would be awesome if he just lived the, lived the retirement life. You think he goes... I think it depends on his standing at Alabama and if he's exhausted 
Spurrier left Florida for the NFL because he was exhausted. Saban, I think, always had that part of him, that competitor side, that just wanted to scratch that itch. DeBoer's never had an assistant job even in the NFL, where so many of these coaches at least have somewhat of that background. So it's tricky. I think so many things would have to line up for that to, to make sense. He strikes me more as someone who really does like the college job, and even if it's not at Alabama for 10, 15 years, I think he would stay in there, but it's a question that I feel like we have to open up to pretty much to, to a lot of these guys. Now we just kind of wonder, and well, I don't think it's going to be a trend. I do think it's at least a fair question to ask. Yeah. And when you think about this, he's been okay with the college game, but it's getting worse in terms of time management and it's going to get, it, it's just worse now at Alabama in terms of the pressure that's on him. So I don't know. Like I, it was something I was thinking about. And I mean, I, the be all end all in the minds of Alabama fans is Alabama. Like that's the pinnacle, right? But for some people, it it might not be. And it might get more 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 of a it might become more of a possibility as, you know, DeBoer's in year three or year four and things haven't fixed themselves in terms of the calendar in college football. Could be. Could be. Did you have a favorite hire of this cycle? Oh, man, favorite hire. I, you know what? Not really. I didn't really. I mean, I thought there were some good ones, right? Like uh, Sharon Moore, like that. You know, it was probably Sharon Moore. Yeah. Right. Because Michigan could have gone the Brian, not Brian Kelly. I'm not necessarily saying he would go, but gone after Brian Kelly or gone after somebody who has a much bigger name. Like they didn't outthink the room. And I think a lot of times ADs like to outthink the room. And the promotion, you know, when you have a promotion like that, I think maybe the, a lot a lot of ADs, maybe this is the, a thing of the past, but they view that as sort of a backup plan that will keep the fan base content, but not necessarily make them excited. I think Michigan fans are excited about Sharon Moore. And I think, you know, for Ward Manuel, you know, he didn't outthink the room, which is, which is, I think, in this case, a good thing and probably should be more commonplace than it actually is. UCLA outthought the room. And did like botch this horribly. I mean, in such horrendous ways. We don't know who's going to take over as of this as of this recording uh, for Chip Kelly after this move. But like, you want to talk about botching a, a an entire process because it looked like Jed Fish was just sitting there, possibly available. Jonathan Smith obviously would have been such an such a home run candidate in the way that we talk about you know all those obvious connections, but. Man, it just feels like there are so many ways that you can mess this up. And Michigan doing the least sexy thing possible might have actually done the smartest thing. But, of course, that can just change in two years. Well, and here's the thing, too, is I've already talked to a lot of coaches and, and you know, made contact with, uh, with some agents. And there have already been a lot of coaches that have turned down UCLA. Like, yeah. flat out said, even before they were even offered or if it was discussed, don't bother, not interested. But here's and here's the thing too that that brings up a great point and why I hate this argument. I hated this argument when it was about Scott Frost leaving Orlando for Nebraska and why I hate the 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 thought of like oh Lincoln Riley left Norman Oklahoma to go be in LA and it's like these coaches aren't it's not like quality of life in that specific area, right? It's not just oh hey, you want to be a come want to be a head football coach and make 7 million dollars to be the head coach at UCLA and live here. There are so many other things that go into that, that if that's your logic, that's the new, oh, this quarterback is just a winner. It's just lazy analysis to try yeah. and say, like, that's what creates a good job. But it's, it's, it is it's interesting because, I like, 
whatever we talk about is is a job of UCLA, what it is, this cycle has hurt it significantly. And it's hard to get around like how much that that program has it feels like has fallen off in the last couple of years. Yeah. And if the organization, the administration is dysfunctional, which you know, I think we can all we can all we all know that UCLA's, you know, organizational structure is not where it should be. Yeah. Why would you leave a lesser job, even if it's a, you know, a high end group of five job to go to UCLA and get your tail kicked in the Big Ten? Right. Because then your stock goes boom straight down and you're not getting another job. So, like, if you're making what, four million dollars as a group of five coach or five as a or you're probably going to get a raise if you succeed as a group of five coach to what, four and a half, five million dollars. Why would you and, and you're content, your family's there. It doesn't seem like UCLA would even be attractive at all. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a very strange place that, that the program is in. Um, last one before I let you go. What's your your faith level in Hugh Freeze right now after what's been kind of just a strange offseason, a strange end to, to the season for Auburn? I still think he'll be fine. I mean, he's recruiting well. Um, I think he'll hit the transfer portal again really hard in the spring. I, I do have a little bit of a concern in him – tying himself to Peyton Thorne more than maybe he should. That to me is the one thing that Auburn fans should be concerned about. I think right now he will be fine and he will compete in the new look SEC for the playoff at times, the SEC championship game at times. Is it going to be a yearly thing? No. Could it be like Gus Malzahn where 2010 as an offensive coordinator, 13, 17, you know, they're they're in the discussion or or in 2013's case in the national championship game. Yeah, that might be it. And it, for Auburn fans, I, as I know personally, because I went there, that's probably not going to cut it. Last last one, promote Smother and Covered. Um, and if Waffle House has a, a partnership that, that it's agreed with you um, already. No, still waiting for that. I mean, if it, if they just want to give me free food, I'm I'm cool with that. But no, uh, no more CBS started uh, independently. Uh, college football smothered and covered. Uh, it, I'm still kind of tinkering on when to go live, if we need to go live, things like that. Um, trying to do it every day. It might not be an everyday thing. It might be three days a week. So still looking at like analytics and stuff. But uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I've had a lot of fun. College football smothered and covered. It's on YouTube, Rumble, Apple Podcast, Spotify, all that. I could go down and list, but like everybody knows where to find all this stuff. If if you know how to find the stuff, it's probably there. If you know how to find this podcast, you can figure out how to find Smothered and Covered as well, <laughs> which I, I recommend. Barrett, Thank uh, you. I appreciate man. that. Yeah, really appreciate it, man. Just a quick note. We recorded the interview. Um, Barrett and I recorded that uh, on Monday morning. And before UCLA had named a head coach, they have since promoted running backs coach Deshaun Foster. Uh, to that role, wanted to clean that up. It kind of piggybacks on what Barrett was saying earlier. So still think uh, the context of that is still very much uh, appropriate. Jersey contest, Will, if, if you are watching this on YouTube and you're looking at Will, mm -hmm. you might have been wondering this entire time, Connor, you've gotten this deep into the podcast and you have not mentioned the fact that Will has not won, but two Carl's strawberries showing on his jersey. We've had a wide variety of jerseys on this show. But two strawberries as the prominent sponsor on a jersey is a first, and it's probably going to be a last. 
Yes, and this brings uh, never say never kind of no. This is brings uh, two things that I love so much, which is like kind of minor league sports, right? Kind of not like your Euro League, but right under that, and also international sports, right? So this is a Berlin Ice Baron jersey, and basically they're like uh, polar bears, like ice bears, and um, that's the hockey team from when I went to Berlin. Like you said, it is covered in logos head to toe. Kind of looks like a NASCAR uh, situation here. I I was disappointed to learn there was not a bathroom in here. Um, but point being, you know they. This style of like sports is really like when you fall in love with sports, right? It's like your local team. You know, it's not the Alabama or the Ohio State. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's you know, uh, Indiana or Iowa State. It's like random, you know, as far as college football goes, not the brand, right? But like point being, like, it's, it's just cool to see like how these guys are rally, rally by this team. They have a ton of like national team guys that play in Berlin. They also play at the uh, Mercedes-Benz uh, Arena, which is pretty crazy. Uh, but yeah, when I went to Berlin, I, I got to like see their team store and just – you know me. I love a thick bear. This is my second yep. thick bear jersey. You know, I had the lacrosse one as well. So saw the thick bears. Saw they only had one of these alternate jerseys that are sick, and it was a triple XL. And I was like, it's made for me. No one's gonna pick this up if it's not me. So here I am. Yet you do not like the Chicago Bears. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, I'm I'm at least indifferent on them because of you. You know. Okay. I'll take indifferent. That's mm-hmm. that's better than than pure hatred. Not a Cubs fan technically. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's all right. That's that's fair. It, it is. You're right. It is a NASCAR car. It felt weird to say out loud. NASCAR car in jersey form. That is mm-hmm. what Will is is currently wearing. But look, I am all for the unique jersey. I, I am all for it. And the ability to to purchase a jersey internationally. You know what I regret is being in Greece and not purchasing a Giannis jersey. there. Mm. Yeah, you can get a Giannis jersey in America in the States. But with the Greek lettering, where only oh, the real yeah. ones would know, that would have been mm, that would have been fire. They were that was God, that was 2017. So that was before he like got really, really big, and mm-hmm. they still had those all over the place. I felt like, oh, there's Giannis jersey, there's Giannis jersey. How did I know there were Giannis jerseys if they were in Greek? I'm wondering to myself, was it just that there was? I mean, 34? if you see that last name, there's not too much you can do to change it to turn it into Greek. Yeah, that's true. Okay, but like I, I think I was recognizing even like the front of the jersey. Like maybe mm-hmm. that's how I that's how familiar I became with with seeing them. I probably saw one, saw the back of it, and then I recognized the other. That's exactly what happened. Okay, mm-hmm. that makes mm-hmm. a lot more sense. I am not deaf. I am not that smart to be able to decipher those things. But I think that's a, a great addition. We'll have uh, the next round of voting. Follow uh, Saturday Down South podcast on Twitter at the SDS Pod to be able to vote on the next round of the jersey contest. Lad of the week, Will. I'm going to start. Yeah, go first. It's obvious. I mean, look, uh, call me basic. Travis Kelsey's my lad of the week. Okay. And I, and I know he's taking criticism because he got a little bit mad at Andy Reid on the sideline. Who among us hasn't gotten a little bit heated and wanted to at least yell at our head coach? He, Listen, he just wanted to be Jordan Poole. He wanted to show out for the baddies. Again, you're going to have to explain exactly what that means. But, yes, I I agree 100%. To, to show out for the baddies, that's what he was doing. Um, he was invisible in the first half of that game. Invisible. Mm-hmm. And then by the second half, you're like, this dude is still such a unicorn. And the plays that he makes in space, man, it's not. it's just not all scheme. And he took over at several points of that game and was just on a different level. And you could see – what the headlines are if that first half continued in the second half. And if he was quiet and if he played his worst game of the playoffs even, 
the amount of people that just would have roasted him and oh see it's taylor swift it's too much it's blah 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 and all the outside noise is impacting him taylor swift is the reason the chiefs didn't no no no. none of that none of that and the guy has just been able to to be dialed in if you could be dialed in with a season like this the way that he has been in the press national conversations like that is remarkable stuff and so everybody sees the video post game and he's celebrating Jason Kelsey, also a very good candidate for lad of the week. Once again, for rock the mask. Oh my God. Like that guy has had a time the last month of his life at these playoff games, but you know, they, they've got the, um, the, you belong with me going at the club and it's like the club version and, and Taylor and Travis are pointing at each other. And a lot of people that are going to hate on that. I'm not here to hate on that. The guy is, on top of the world, it's hard to be doing a whole lot better than Travis Kelsey in this current moment. Yes, 100%. You know, it's, it's, I'm a big believer in supporting what people support and who they are. You know, Taylor Swift, very obviously not my flavor of a woman, but for, for him, it works. And that, Whoa, you know, not your flavor of woman. Yes. Uh, not your flavor of music or not your flavor of woman. Those are two different things. No, it's not my flavor of woman. I just don't think she's that attractive. But like you know, for for him, that's oh, the dream, right? Oh, okay. yeah. I see what you're saying. I see yeah, what you're like saying. I, okay. like that's the apex. That style, that archetype, right? That's the you know that is the the best one of the like 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 she is so on top of her career. So many people love her, and the fact that he is able to show out for the baddies, the fact that he's able to do that and complete the goal, and you know, kind of silence the haters, I think is cool. Even though it's not really my thing, I, I don't really like her music, but I can respect him for accomplishing his goals. Which you don't really like successful women. You don't really like people that make their own money. You like being able to pay for all the dinners and stuff. I don't like skinny white girls. That's my thing. If you want to know. Oh. What <laughs> oh. Dude, That's not my taste. All right. I'm just going to tell you before you frame me. I got a type. It's not that type, but I respect it for having his type. All right. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to each their own. Yeah. yeah. More, more Taylor Swift for the rest of us. That doesn't make any sense. I There's a, but that. one, but there, you know, there's versions. <laughs> All right, who you got? Um, <laughs> anyway, so my line of the week is similar, but um, guy that kind of I feel like went un uncovered uh, or unheralded in this game and his performance. Uh, it's gonna be Miko Hardman. You know, mm-hmm. he's a guy that was great at Georgia. He is a guy that time and time again, you know, the Chiefs have not exactly tried to get rid of him, but he hasn't exactly you know li- lived up to his promise. Um, you know, this is a guy that was drafted, you know, in the, the second round. Um, he was supposed to be, you know, a feature wide receiver for them. He was good at Georgia. You know what I'm saying? He was part of the resurgence with Jake Fromm. And he goes to the Chiefs and everyone's thinking, oh, Andy Reid's going to find a way to elevate him, take him to that like, next level. Um, well, you know, that going as far as to bring in Kadarius Tony, who obviously cost them a game and, and was just kind of a worse version of Hardman. But he didn't, you know, pout, demand a trade, do all that. He just kind of did his job. And, you know, as you said, you know, Travis Kelsey was the leading receiver in this game. But through a half, you know what I'm saying? It was Hardman, and he had a receiving touchdown, which Kelsey did not. And so I just think that it's a very cool, yeah. like, you know, uh, um, um, story for this guy who has just kind of been on the back burner, counted out. They've wanted to find this style of receiver for a while. People talk about MBS and, you know, just the general, like, receiver core is always under fire for the Chiefs. And I think that in a huge moment, biggest moment of his career, he was able to come up huge. So I think it's just, you know, a testament to kind of what we talk about here, just keeping your head down, working hard, doing your thing. And I think that, you know, they're glad they kept him. Well, no, he was on the Jets in mid-September. Oh, wow. I forgot yeah. about that. Then he came back. My bad. Then, then he came back. Yeah. Yeah. It was, Which, it was like... as, but being on the Jets doesn't count because that's not an NFL team. So the only NFL team he's played for, there you go. Very, very true. Yeah. The, yeah. the Chiefs second are the only NFL, the true NFL franchise. Did you see his tweet? Uh, I think it was this morning. Yeah. It was 
I shouldn't even say it was this morning. I think it was like one o'clock this afternoon. He mm-hmm. tweeted something ineffective. St- still can't sleep. Adrenaline pumping right now. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, King. If you catch the game winning, the game winning pass to win a Super Bowl, I three days, three days until you can kind of calm down off of that high. You're chasing that high for the rest of your life. There's no high that will be like that on any athletic surface that you touch. I like the adrenaline. I, I just cannot possibly imagine it. And the way that it happened too, with him mm-hmm. kind of being wide open. And it was, it was like this perfectly schemed look for him mm-hmm. to be able to get to the pylon. And he just knows it. Like, I can't even begin to imagine what that feeling was. But good for me, Cole Hardman, man. Georgia, yes. some are saying they win a third consecutive national championship with that. People are saying, yes, my my Instagram story would look like grains of rice if I caught that. It would just be molecules. There would be so many of them. I'd be taking pictures with the postman. I'd be shouting people out, saying it on my story. I'd be having a great time. But yeah, like I said, like I said great, great cleanup on the Jets thing. And it's like, yeah, I, I think that even still rings true because it's like, you know, you you drift apart you come back together um and you know again every useful player is not you know uh jordan jefferson or sorry justin jefferson it's like everybody has a role and i think it's just super cool this team came together in in mahomes one of his uh worst statistical seasons i'd say it was a bad season but for him he's used to 50 touchdowns he's used to these crazy heights the fact that they leaned on the run game of pacheco they leaned on their defense in spagnolo who hand up he was a guy i thought was trash after he ruined the saints defense in 2012 and he was able to respond and, and that that you know team was able to really all work together. And it wasn't just the Mahomes show or the Taylor Swift show. That's the funny thing about this team is that it seemed like Mahomes versus this team of the Niners who had all these different pieces. When you look at it at the end, it's like everybody really played their role. Like it was not one guy. Mahomes did not have this great performance. Everybody gave all they had. And that's why an overtime victory is possible. Now the Chiefs will try and become the first team to three-peat since 1936 Minnesota. There you go. Uh, It's coming. Eh, not quite. Great Ed Widseth will probably revive the Chiefs' chances. Uh, we'll have to do stories on Ed Widseth to be able to kind of contextualize what it means uh, for the Chiefs. That was actually a really good story by Seth Emerson, who wrote that. Um, was very interesting um, a few months ago when that came out. But yes, the mm-hmm. the talk of, of Dynasty and 3 Pete felt like we went from one sport to another. Now the Chiefs will, will get that opportunity. Mm-hmm. All right. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast. Follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter, at the SDS Pod, at Set Down South, at CGO Guerra, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.